Why did you stop me from killing her? Tell me while you're still alive. No, I was born with black skin. You were born with a black skin? Yes. Interesting. Someone must know something. I wish to learn. Read a book. I would rather have a good composition. Typical. Selfish. You think like a human. <laughs> I have enjoyed this conversation in English. Hello, my name is John and I'm a public historian and your Japanese history enabler. This is the show where I put a podcaster through their paces as they discover Japanese history through the lens of popular media and film. And our guest today is Jamal of the Get in the Mecca podcast. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on today. What's your history of watching anime and like Japanese media as a whole? I went to anime around 2016, a route that most people go down, which is, you know, watching Battle Shonen related anime, started reading and watching Naruto. I eventually kind of stopped reading the manga, watched the anime, and then it kind of just snowballed from there. And here I am now, uh, kind of obsessed, <laughs> to be honest. And on your on your own like YouTube channel and podcast, you do lots of like in depth breakdown of different kinds of art and things like that. And but how much would you say you know anything about the history of Japan at all? Uh, to be honest, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I know too much. Obviously, you do pick up a few things when you watch anime itself. But I do understand that it's not usually the full story. It's often quite abbreviated. So I I still have a lot of work to do in that area. And what piece of media or film did I get you to watch for this week's show? Um, you got me to watch the Heike Story or Heike Monitari. The Heike Story, which was released in 2021 by Studio Science Saru. In Japanese, it's the Heike Monogatari, which is an adaption of a 13th to 14th century historical epic based on Furukawa Hideo's 2016 translation of it into modern Japanese. It details the events of the Genpei War, a conflict from 1180 to 1185 CE between two families, the Taira, also known as the Heike, and the Minamoto, also known as the Genji. The name of the war itself comes from the mixing of the kanji for the Genji and the Heike, making Genpei. It works in Japanese, doesn't work in English. The war itself is the battle for supremacy between two warrior families that would conclude in the establishment of Japan's first military government, the shogunate, and enforce the supremacy of the military class of the samurai as the supreme power of the land for the next 670-odd years. And also, because it's going to get a bit confusing, I will use the term Heike story whenever I talk about the anime. When I say the Heike Monogatari or Heike Monogatari or Tale of the Heike, I'm talking about some form of the original text. I'm not going to go too much into the plot of the anime because we'll be doing that throughout the rest of the show as we break down the events of the Genpei War. But just the main thing that sets it apart is the inclusion of a character called Biwa, who we essentially see the story throughout. She is a small girl who loses her father at the beginning and is essentially adopted by a member of the Tyra family. And we see the events through her as she also can see the future, as I'm told all small girls can do. <laughs> I, I think there is a bit of a trend of that in anime, of, you know, make a small girl do like a really incredible thing and in the case of Heike I think it works really well yes maybe slightly absurd as it is. The two historians we have with us are first Dr Elizabeth Euler uh, associate professor of pre-modern Japanese literature at the University of Pittsburgh she is an expert on how historical and cultural memory are represented in literature and performing arts from Japan's medieval period her first book focused on Japan's most famous military tale the tale of the Heike, exploring its connections to and influences on both the writing and performing of the early age of Japan's first shogunate. She also has a second book out now that she has edited along with Catherine Saltzman Lee, which is Cultural Imprints, War and Memory in the Samurai Age. And alongside her is Dr. Hilary K. Snow from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, a specialist in Asian visual culture who teaches courses on Asian studies, art history, and museums, with a focus on the visual culture of early modern Japanese urban spaces and aesthetic amusements at religious institutions. 
And this would also be the time where I usually break down the period in which this anime takes place. However, the period in which this anime takes place, it is an adaption of one of the main like texts vaguely about that period. So we're going to go in that further on. Our second section will be looking at the Heike as essentially a written text or a performative text and its history as itself. Our third and final section will have a special look at Japanese art with Dr. Hilary K. Snow as she looks at Yukioe prints and traditional stories like the Heike Monogatari are represented and then exported. This is the Heian period, the very end of the Heian period, which starts in 794 CE. Heian is the capital that starts this period. We move to Heian-kyo, which is now the name for modern-day Kyoto. It would remain the capital and seat of the emperor for the next 1,000 years, but by the end of this period, the power of the emperors begin to fade until the plot of the anime happens. Uh, so what we'll be talking about today mostly occurs from the 1150s to the 1180s CE, and in the rest of the world, the time period means that the holy city of Jerusalem is in control of the Christian crusader states, but they would soon lose it to the famous leader Salahadin. A boy called Temujin is born in what is now modern-day Mongolia, and he would, of course, go on to be known better as Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan. And Afonso I becomes the first king of Portugal, proclaiming it an independent kingdom. But now, Jamal, are you ready to get started? Yeah, I'm very ready. (laughs) Section 1. The Genpei War Jamal, before you watched the Heike story, did you have any idea something like this even existed? Like Honestly, no. I, I think I learned so much through this anime, which is why I'm so grateful to it. Because, uh, of, of course, again, I, I know it's like adapted in, in a lot of ways, but I, that was really my route into actually like knowing this section of Japanese history and uh, I, I guess its importance now. The best thing to start off with is saying that the Heike Monogatari is not a historical text. However, for a lot of Japanese history, it was viewed as a historical text. Right. But we do also have other sources from this time that are more just, this happened at this date, this happened at this date people wrote diaries, etc. The best way to like compare it for maybe a Western mind is think of Shakespeare's history plays mm-hmm. or something like the Iliad or the Odyssey. These are stories and events that are based on something that really happened. However, especially the characterizations or the minutiae of it is much more difficult to like confirm. So the emperor is the head of everyone in Japan, the emperor or tenno in Japanese. Now, because of the time, there is constant infighting between the court and the multiple emperors about who would be in control. It is dominated by a clan called the Fujiwara. They are not the imperial family. However, they control the title of the imperial regent. One of the main things they do to maintain this is by marrying their daughters to the different emperors. And so the emperors are then related to the Fujiwara family. Via tradition at that time, the heirs or the sons of the Fujiwara daughters would be raised in the household on their mother's side and also have to acknowledge the power of their grandfather. On the point of like the marriages, I think that was one of the more powerful parts for me. Like when you get deeper into the series and you see... um... Toka's father trying to marry her off and all that I think that's where I think that was where I started to realize that at least the anime for the like, story like actually has some sort of I guess you say feminist potential in the sense that it was a story much more than just you know about the happenings in court but actually about how um, women specifically were treated at at this sort of time or at least like within this sort of court culture so something develops called the inse system Uh, This means a system of cloistered rule of emperors. This is unofficial, but essentially the emperor would retire, often at a relatively young age, and become a monk, become a Buddhist monk, and leave the throne to one of his children, who could be as young as two, three years old. They then would use their own personal influence as a monk and ex-emperor to control the royal court and have conflict with the Fujiwara regents. Uh, the character of Go Shirakawa, who becomes 
is basically one of the main forces behind this entire event, is such a cloistered emperor and is probably the last one to have any major power. He is also only emperor from 1155 to 1158 CE. And he lives until 1192. (laughs) He only reigns for three years, but he is effectively in control for 37 years. And survives the reign of five other emperors. And now we get to the two main families. We have the Taira and the Minamoto. They also have some kind of imperial relation, because in the late 8th to early 9th century, the imperial court was super large. We had too many people. So one of the emperors basically said that any previous relation of the emperor uh, before a certain point was disinherited and was not eligible for the throne. Therefore, they were allowed to go out into the world to do stuff. So the families, these surnames that were given to them, the Taida and the Minamoto, were produced. And they went on to become the first two major warrior families who are not on the same level as the Fujiwara and the court families. And because of that, they're not allowed to hold official titles, which is one of the main conflicts with Taida no Kiyomori, who is our big man. What right. did you think when you first saw the anime? You got this introduced, this character who's a bit larger than life. We see him in a very old age of this monk, Taida no Kiyomori. Um, to be completely honest, I, I find him very annoying, <laughs> at least to begin with. Um, he's like the loudest person in pretty much every room. Uh, he, he doesn't look very nice as well. He's like very like sweaty and annoying. But at the same time, I think that was a really good way of like getting into the idea that at least everyone in this anime isn't particularly a good person, or at least as they seem, um, that he's definitely um, uh, he, he's definitely someone who chases their desires and will do anything to do that. Uh, and like the beginning of the anime just shows that tension in the room as he kind of, you know, is spouting out all his, all his nonsense and uh, trying to you know, prove that he is the, the Don in the room, essentially. The anime itself is very accurate to how the stories portray him. He is portrayed as this inevitable huge figure who is the cause of the Heike's destruction. The conflict actually kind of starts with the accession of Go Shirakawa to the throne in 1155 CE. Shortly after that, in 1156, an event occurs called the Hogen Rebellion, uh, which is a conflict between Go Shirakawa and a cloistered former emperor, Sutoku. Each side try to find allies amongst the warrior houses of the Taira and the Minamoto, with members of both clans fighting on both sides. Goshirakawa's side wins, and the two notable figures on the winning side are Taira no Kiyomori and Minamoto no Yoshitomo. This then comes to a head because they develop a huge rivalry, and a couple of years later in 1160 CE, both of the sides are head of their own clan. Kiyomori is head of the Taira, Yoshitomo is head of the Minamoto, and the main Taira family all go on a pilgrimage. They all leave the city, and with their absence from Kyoto... Uh, there a plot comes to pass, which is called the Heiji Rebellion. Uh, the Minamoto and a member of the Fujiwara clan kidnap the emperor and the cloistered emperor and have themselves given titles to proclaim their power. We are the best. However, when the Tyra return, the emperors manage to escape and then task the Tyra clan with destroying the rebels. Uh, this attack was led by anime favorite boy, Tyra no Shigamori. Shigamori is like best boy in my opinion to put it in anime terms in the sense that um he's kind of portrayed as the balancing force to kiyomori in the sense that he's much more reasonable he's not attempting to i guess sort of claim everything and yeah i think he's just portrayed as just a a decent guy you kind of want to be around even if you know he kind of is part of this structure that isn't great but he is uh, he's not an awful person i'd I'd have a drink with him maybe now this rebellion as lots of them do end with the destruction of the failed party or most of them the only people who are left of the minamoto clan are the 13 year old son of minamoto yoshitomo minamoto no yoritomo and his two even younger brothers. Uh, this is the point where the Heike Monogatari kind of starts. 
The Taira family go from strength to strength. They ally themselves with Go Shirakawa, and Kiyomori becomes the first person of a warrior family to be given the title of Chancellor of the Realm in 1167 CE. He then resigned as that and the head of the family. This sounds odd, but this is essentially a power move, because in Japan you essentially have kind of more power when you've resigned at this point than you do when you have to do all the work of being the head of the clan and doing this. Right. He, he kind of reminds me of like a shadow boss in a, like a mafia movie or something. He he, yeah. he technically isn't the front of it, but he yeah. has a lot of like the influence. And during this time, Kiyomori and Go Shirakawa fall out because someone is being more in charge than the other person. Go Shirakawa essentially goes into exile after Kiyomori essentially conquers Kyoto after the death of the emperor who is married to his daughter and proclaims his, I think, one or two-year-old grandson the emperor. Before all this happens, Shigamori gets to die. As depicted in the anime, he gets a sickness uh, in 1179 CE. So very sad for him. But the whole point in the Heike is that he does not see the downfall of his clan or he does not wish to see it. In the anime as well, he can see the dead. That's not part of the original story. He is famously called the Lantern Lord. In the anime, this is because it's like, ooh, he uses the lantern to keep away, like, the spirits and stuff. He doesn't Mm -hmm. like the dark. He does have lanterns, but he has a temple built that is 48 bays long, that is inspired by the 48 great boughs of the Buddha Amida. In each area is hung a lantern. Okay, however, after all this, Go Shirakawa would then go and support the Minamoto in an attempt to reclaim some of his power as the Taira continued to alienate most of their allies. And Go Shirakawa then supports a different grandson who would then go on to become the Emperor Gotoba and the Minamoto support him and thus start the official start of the war in 1180. We talk about the characters here as if they're in the anime. It's important to know we have no idea like what they were like as people really we some people from this time would have written diaries uh, there is a very famous fujiwara courtier who writes diaries about like everyday events and things but kiyomori and shigimori it's much more their reputation and because also they're on the losing side how much of it is like creation we don't know Essentially, the most important things that happen are Minamoto no Yoritomo's uncle, after the recapture of Kyoto, betrays him. Uh, he is then killed. Then there is the famous Battle of Ichiotani, with the element with Atsumori, and also the Battle of Danouda. Now, specifically, the last of these ends the war. And un- actually, unusually for Japanese history, it's a naval battle in the Shimonoseki Strait which is between the two main islands of Kyushu and Honshu. This ends as it does in the tale with the death of the six-year-old emperor. And the main thing that is also lost is one of the three pieces of imperial regalia, which basically embody the authority of the emperor. And you kind of need it to be to be crowned emperor. And here for the first time, we'll hear from Dr. Elizabeth Euler on the importance of Danoura as the start of a new era. In the final battle, the battle at Danoura, the child emperor drowned. He was carried in the arms of his grandmother to the bottom of the sea. Um, but when she and all of her gentlewomen and his mother all jumped overboard, they took with them the three imperial regalia. And one of those three regalia, the imperial sword, was lost in this battle. So this is the first kind of loss of one of the symbolic, you know, markers of imperial authority. So we have the death of the emperor. We have the loss of the sword. So there's this kind of complete kind of shaking up of the things that are steady and that are meaningful in kind of normal succession of power from one emperor to the next um, in in Japan at this moment. So it's it's a it's a kind of symbolically difficult fraught moment and it was followed by a number of disasters including an earthquake. Regardless, this all ends in the death and destruction of the Heike clan and the Minamoto clan go on to found the first military government in Kamakura under the title of Shogun, thus ending the Heian era and ushering in over 600 years of rule by military governments. Section 2. 
the text of the Heike Monogatari. What is the Heike Monogatari? What do you think it is? Is it a book? That's what I believed it was. At least I, I know that um, uh, Furukawa Hideo did do like the translation that exists as a book, but its original form is something that now you've made me not too sure of. I, I don't know what it is exactly now. Dr. Elizabeth Euler will tell us more. Because I think when people think about the tale of the Heike, Heike Monogatari, they think about um, a book that sits on the shelf. Um, and we've had it translated into English a number of times. Um, it's been translated into modern Japanese a number of times and other languages as well. In reality, when we think about the tale of the Heike kind of in the cultural context in which it developed, really from really from the beginning in the very end of the 12th century and moving well into the 14th century, we're talking about um, a set of texts and also a set of performances. It's a set of stories that are performed specifically alongside an instrument called a biwa, which is what biwa, the character, uses to tell the story in the anime. Dr. Elizabeth Euler will tell us about how spirits and the spirits of the dead are associated with this in Shinto. There's always a concern when somebody important dies under bad circumstances that they will come back as a as an angry spirit, as an onmyo, and you know, and cause havoc in the capital. Um, and so there was concern about the dead heike. And so one important dimension for the tale of the heike is kind of it kind of emerged from um, memorial singing, memorial services for the dead um, that then developed into longer stories that were strung together. And then we end up with a long narrative that really started out as kind of prayers for the dead. And that's a simplification. There's loads of different versions because it's so popular for 700 years. People perform it all around the country and it just becomes people end up developing their own stories for it. I think the anime does a really good job of making it like a performance. One, because of course you get the performances inserted throughout the show, but also I, I think the way it's structured as well kind of lends itself to that as well, how each episode, or at least usually between either one or two episodes, there's a time skip, kind of like an act in a theatre play or a theatrical play. It feels very much like you're watching a performance that's split up into these parts. I think it doesn't do the best job, perhaps, at letting you know that, okay, this part is a different act now. But in, in retrospect, I think it does a really good job of feeling more like a performance than purely just like a TV show or just a linear set of history. It's actually just kind of split up into multiple acts. This is then, of course, important because of the shogunal family. Here is Dr. Elizabeth Euler. The tale of the Heike was really from the Muromachi period, picked up by the shogunal family and supported, right? It had, it was sanctioned by the Ashikaga. It was later sanctioned by the Tokugawa during the Tokugawa period, you know, from the very highest echelons. And that's not surprising, right? This is an origin story for the shogunal house. What actually is the theme of the Heike story? What would you say the theme is, having having only watched the anime itself? Uh, I would say the overall theme to me is mortality. It's just the idea that like anyone, no matter who you are, with no matter how much power you have, has you know the capacity to, uh, I guess, just die. And here is Dr. Elizabeth Euler totally agreeing with you. Virtually every version of the tale of the heike starts out with this gion shoja episode which is the you know this statement about the impermanence of all existence and this you know the the bells of the gion monastery ring the impermanence of all things you know the the mighty will never will not last for long we are all dust before the wind and that every heike version starts out with this statement on on impermanence that that you know kiyomori as the Heike Sion, who was so ambitious and so ruthless, was bound to fall. That nothing, no matter what glory anyone rises to, they will fail in the end. So it's, you know, it's this kind of warning against pride, warning against arrogance. Um, but it's, on the one hand, it's a warning, and on the other, it's just kind of a statement of, <laughs> this, is, this is the nature of all existence, right? Where, you know, no matter who we are, we are born, 
we we flourish or we don't and then we die it's very much based on the buddhist philosophy of like the cycle of life and death and one of the things that does survive is the story and they survive through the storytellers so we do actually get a glimpse of a very traditional storyteller of the heike story right at the very start do you know who that is i honestly couldn't say no it is our protagonist biwa it is her father the blind monk, which is better known as a Biwa Horshi. And here is Dr. Euler on that. Right. So we have the, you know, and these are the, the famous Biwa Horshi who are performers, blind males usually. And, you know, when we say blind, it's hard to know exactly what that all that encompasses in um, in classical Japan. But, um, but men who were kind of nominally associated with temples, um, who played the played the biwa and accompanied them well accompanied themselves on the biwa as they sang stories of the dead so the biwa you see it in the anime but for those who haven't seen it it's a kind of japanese lute here's more uh, from dr euler about them the biwa performance in the heike story is satsuma biwa which is styles of performing heike that developed in response to the importation of the shamisen they're kind of like jung, 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 really really dramatic those are things that happened in the edo period and beyond um and so stories still were carried around there was this formal level that was for the shoguns and that was protected and then there were they, there were things that were a little more random and that's where you get much more interesting well-developed stories of people like atsumori or people like sanimori and it's not only that it's like popular, that it has these different themes, it's also that it has practical uses. There's this heike from like the end of the Sengoku Jidai, when the Jesuits were in Kyushu. And, and it's a tale of the heike as told by some storyteller to some Jesuit is a work that the Jesuits used for learning Japanese, Amakusabon. So it's this text that is written in kind of Romanized Japanese, Romanized to Portuguese of the time. These stories were still, you know, very much part of um, the everyday lives of everyday people. Because you always think of these texts as like something big, something like historic. You don't think of a student having to sit and translate this for hours on end so they learn Japanese. But especially more thinking to like the modern themes of why it is now popular. Why is it popular now? It's 20th century. Is especially its connection to tragedy. Here's Dr. Elizabeth Euler on the modern tragedy of the tale of the Heike. When those stories for about people from a thousand years ago or 800 years ago are so, are about things that we're still worried about, right? It, it will always be tragic when when a young man, you know, and I think that this is why so many of these stories have held through the late 20th century and into the 21st century, that you have these young men who really aren't fit for battle. They aren't interested in battle. They have, you know, they're people, they're multidimensional people who have other interests and who have connections to family and, you know, and sweethearts and, you know, and teachers and so forth, all, in, and they, they nevertheless are put in harm's way because of the ambition of powerful men. You know, so you, you, I think that, that is, that's a story that's, that never goes away. I think that's what one of the main narrative appeals to me when it comes to the Heike story. It's this idea that stories are eternal and they, you can, yeah, you can get rid of people, but you can't get rid of stories. And Biwa in herself is kind of this eternal story that exists forever and never or hardly ages um so i i really resonate with what she's saying there and i think that's one of the main takeaways i also got from just watching the anime and so this is dr Euler on how the text itself is so important on on modern day suffering this heike this heike story is based on um furukawa hideo's translation of the tale of the heike which I have not read yet, but um, he's someone who was profoundly impacted. His art was profoundly impacted by the triple disasters of 311. And he, this is something that he was, he was kind of reaching into his own cultural past to try to make sense of the suffering that he witnessed and the suffering that we, you know, we do witness from, from that set of disasters. And, you know, and I think it's a touchstone. It's one of those texts that is a touchstone for Japanese and maybe now for more of us um, when 
when the world turns upside down. So for those who might not have the context, 311 is the triple disasters of March 11th, 2011. It's perhaps best known in the West due to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. However, it was a result of the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami, and which together caused just under 20,000 deaths. Uh, Fudukawa Hideo, the writer, uh, is from Fukushima City. I think this is a big context that we don't get in the West when we like see something like the Heike story. And obviously his influence on the on the actual anime production will be limited. This text is a story. It's a story that people return to and have a rethink of and use it to look at themselves. At the same time, I would also say that there is kind of a subtext of suffering as well, or at least that there is the context is sort of supplemented by Naoki Yamada, who, um, for those who aren't aware, um, she was formerly part of Kyoto Animation, and then there was the um, Kyoto Animation arson attack in 2019. Um, she lost many of her colleagues in which she closely works with, animators, directors, etc. And so I think Heike, even if Furukawa's experiences aren't particularly strong in that, I think it does fit a lot of Yamda's experiences as well, as she also witnessed and had to deal with a lot of suffering. And I think it's very fair to argue that the Heike story itself is kind of a way, almost a catharsis on her part. It's a way of her kind of um, coming to terms with a lot of those emotions. And I think that's kind of what she's moving towards in a lot of her like modern work as of late. Yeah. And it comes to the final question, though. This is a wonderful story that has been enjoyed by people for hundreds and hundreds of years. But is it accurate history? And does it matter? Here is Dr. Roller talking about whether the Heike story matters if it is actually history or not. The Heike story can never be accurate. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's not, I, you know, I always love to tell my students how small he never existed. And he may have existed, but... You know, what is important for the Heike story is what's always important for history is not actually what happened necessarily. It's how we remember what happened, right? And that is what Heike does for us. It remembers this set of stories in a way that holds together in a way that's memorable and that makes meaning. And so you have, for example, you have Shigemori, who not only in the anime, but also in most versions of the Heike, really comes off as, you know, as the voice of reason versus Kiyomori. And we don't know that that was accurate at all. We don't know he was this really upstanding, good guy, but that that is very much part of the story of Heike. And, you know, and you have very set characteristics for, for the character's in part because you need character foils for to, to make the narrative move and you need to make it make sense. So to me, it doesn't matter that it doesn't get it when you don't get all the facts right. It's, you know, it's interesting. What does it say about us right now that we're looking at this piece of it? And why are we so interested in how bad a guy Kiyomori was right now? You know, each of these things tells us something about ourselves at the moment, um, but about the way that we've always wanted to remember the past and section three ukiyo-e prints and art in edo period japan so it's safe to say that the heike story the anime has maybe a unique like visual aesthetic to it yeah i, I completely agree it's a, based on what anime came out in 2021 and just in general it was probably the most visually striking one to me. There were a few others, but I'd say like Heike was the one that really appealed to me. Um, the colors are very sort of muted and soft in the very like Yamda style that they are, but that very um, visually interesting. One of the main reasons why I got like really invested in it and like watched it as soon as it came out. It tries to do something a bit maybe more more faded, a bit more realistic, but also a little like something called a ukiyo-e print. If someone says the word Japanese art, this is what you will think of. This is Hokusai's wave. So the piece we're talking about, as soon as you'll see it, you'll recognize it. It's called The Great Wave of Kanigawa, and it is from like roughly 1831. And it's these pieces that become very popular in Japan around this period. 
But this is also the time period where Japan starts to open up to the West and has more contact with Western powers. And so, not only do people get in contact, but so does their art. And here's Dr. Snow on that. Then there's both an influx of foreigners into Japan and an influx of Japanese things going out. There are the world exhibitions. Japan is sending material out. Uh, The woodblock prints and ukiyo-e in particular become very interesting for artists in Paris. So that material starts to come in along with a lot of other Japanese objects. There's an old story that used to be told um, that ukiyo-e prints were discovered in Paris because they were used to wrap ceramics that were sent from Japan. And that's very inaccurate. What What that story seems to arise from is the idea that dealers in Tokyo would send bound ukiyo-e books as sort of an extra bonus gift with the shipment of the the ceramics into Paris. So artists in Paris became very interested in ukiyo-e material, started to use it in some of their work as well. So that's that's sort of a, a moment when it becomes really interesting for the West. It's literally, if you've ever bought something off Etsy from an independent artist, and they've sent you like a little thank you present with the stuff you bought. Ukiyo-e prints. The consumerism is what arguably makes people tick, so I'm, I'm honestly not surprised. But one of the most popular pieces to be depicted in Ukiyo-e prints is the tale of the Heike, the Heike Monogatari. Otherwise, it'd be a bit weird if we were talking about it. Here's Dr. Snow on the topic. So the Tokugawa don't allow contemporary events to be published. They don't allow living people to appear within ukiyo-e. Actors and prostitutes are an obvious exception to that. Um, although there, is, there are moments in time when they, when they try to prevent actors from appearing in prints under their own names, and that doesn't work. Um, but they don't want contemporary events depicted. So if you can use the Minamoto as a stand-in for the Tokugawa, then you can start to talk about contemporary events a bit. So Heike Monogatari is extremely useful in the Tokugawa period as a way to connect to the modern moment and get around the censorship that says, no, you can't put the Shogun in a story or on a print or something like that. Well, obviously, when you watch an anime, you're not very suspicious. Well, you don't really suspect of the, the context behind this and how this story is packaged and distributed out. You just think of it as an anime, but uh, how at least this adaptation of a story existed back then is like completely different. And so, like again, it's quite fascinating to see what that actually looks or what that actually was like relative to you know kind of just watching it on Funimation. Yeah, this story has seven hundred years of baggage that's coming with it when you watch it. It, it it literally does because it's influenced by every single person who's retold it, who's given it a different way, who's viewed it in a different way. And right. the Edo period is so important is because that's when these if that's when these ideas and these kind of art it is then basically exposed to the West. And especially the story of the Heike itself, the story does the story and the themes that get focused on start to change. Here's Dr. Snow on that. I think it changes in the Edo period. I think before there's a lot of, you know, it's the pathos of the defeat. And in the Edo period, when we have circulating single sheet or um, triptych ukiyo-e prints of it, those tend to focus on battle scenes. There's a lot of the glory of the battle, which is not is arguably not really the focus of the of the story. It's more interpersonal reactions, interactions. Uh, think of what are the most famous moments from the tale of Heike. It's things like the death of Atsumori. Those are the sorts of things. It's not the great battles. Um, some exceptions, right? Dan no Ura, I think, is a is a, a big exception to that. But it's a lot of interpersonal interactions. Think about what gets made into a no play. Those are very different moments from the from the tale than what appears more popularly in the Edo period. So I think that there's um, a shift in interest, at least in popular culture. 
one of those elements that leads it to like this change in focus is because of what Japan is like during the Edo period. And that is specifically a time of limited interaction with the outside world, quite still a lot of interaction with other Asian countries, but specifically there is very limited amount of conflict and fighting. And here's Dr. Snow on how that would influence it. That it's a warrior tale being celebrated in a period when people are really separated from war. So it's easier to glorify those battles when they haven't been fought. People, people appreciating Heike Monogatari in earlier periods, you know, in the 16th century, they were living through war. They were understanding it in a different way. In the 18th and the 19th century, people aren't living through war. Being a warrior does not actually mean fighting on a regular basis. And so it's easier to glorify those aspects of the novel, of the, of the tale. Um, it's easier to find joy and interest in them when you're not actually seeing people fight and suffer. I think there's quite an interesting connection between how the anime talks about stories and how the story actually changed in the sense that, um, you know, the Heike, the Heike story is about how this story grows and develops and changes through through times and the story of the Heike is constantly shifting based on who controls the narrative in Japan at that time and equally in real life in the real world and the way that story is viewed the context in which it's in is also like shifting as well so I think the two synchronize very well it's almost this whole idea that you know art imitates life and life imitates art they kind of are doing the same thing and i guess that's partially the genius of the story as well as a public historian who loves tv shows and films that's why i'm talking about it here i think it's really important that the number one purpose of a tv show is to tell a good story history is always going to be lower because even in say a documentary you're not going to get the history out of it unless you watch the thing first and unless you're in a unless you're in a classroom and being forced to watch it you're not being forced to watch it i think we can view history as a story in itself and history as a narrative and i, and I think yeah, the Hake story does a good job of that it's just like again if you go back to the idea that it is a story and so on but also it just once again it just returns the whole thing on accuracy and how it's it's what we take from the story that I think is more important than it being purely 100% accurate. Of course, uh, it shouldn't, as you said, I don't think it needs to lie about things entirely, but uh, creating something that resonates with people in, in the case of history and historical narratives, I think is probably more important in this case. And I think the anime does a good job of that. And now, like, you know, speaking with you, I've learned quite a lot to add to that, but I don't feel like my entire understanding has been completely revised and flipped around because it tells a good story, but also respects the history as well. The important thing to note is also a lot of these are personal opinions and art can be changed about depending on when and who and why you're looking at something. And here's Dr. Snow on how looking at art and things is can be so different depending on who the individual is that's um, consuming it. The really important factor, I think, for Edo period art is to think about the idea of mitate, the idea of placing things within a different context, making references that are often parodies, that are often funny, that are often sophisticated, and that can also then bring in a political meaning, but that there's there's a general culture of these references to something that's not quite what it initially seems to be, and the visual or aesthetic pleasure of recognizing that multitude of meaning is an important one within Japanese visual and literary culture. Sometimes that has a political meaning and sometimes that doesn't. And it's this element here that maybe if you look at Ukiyo-e prints, you might think, well, perhaps this is something that influenced like Japanese later art. And here's Dr. Snow on that. I was not immediately struck by a connection to ukiyo-e unless we think about ukiyo-e 
in a, in a lineage with contemporary manga and then manga into anime. Um, and I, I think that that's um, not just me, the scholarship in gen general does draw a line between ukiyo-e manga and anime. Um, and so in that respect, yes, I think they're absolutely within that tradition. Um, and I think there's a, you know, there's, there's a great argument for the widespread circulation of images in the Edo period, laying the groundwork for manga and the continued circulation of that material in Japan now. Was said, I don't think it's something that I would immediately notice, but I can see that that path being made. And I, I think uh, manga and perhaps anime is perhaps diverging away from that, particularly in like, I, I'd say, I don't know if you can particularly call it a prince like a realist, but like a lot of that aesthetic that it, or, or the multiple aesthetics that it does, um, maintain are definitely being more uh, are being changed and, and altered because of, of course it's trying to uh, reach out to a different audience and find a different appeal uh, um, but I, I can see like the path being there this it's basically a development of visual art that is something that's been that's been popular now I do want to get back to this idea of accuracy like obviously Dr. Snow has talked about whether it's accurate. She had a little bit of a different view about how important accuracy is to when you look at the history of art and something like this. So here's Dr. Snow on that topic. The danger in treating Heike Monogatari as fact when it's fiction or as literal truth when it's uh, manipulated for other reasons is that then we misunderstand the foundation of the Japanese historical development. And so it, it, it works in two ways, right? Heike Monogatari is the found, that history is the foundation of establishing the Kamakura Shogunate and the Kamakura Shogunate becomes the foundation of later governments in Japan. So if we misunderstand that, we misunderstand later Japan. So I think it matters that we now know. Um, keep in mind this idea of what's literally true, what's not literally true. This is this comes up in the Edo period too. Tokugawa Ieyasu maintained two genealogies of himself, one connecting him to the Minamoto and one connecting him to, to a lineage that would have allowed him to be regent for the emperor. Because the question is, or the question for him was, which is the better path? Is it better to rule a shogun separated from the court or is it better to rule in connection to the court? And he can't be shogun if he's not Minamoto. So he maintains these genealogies to keep his options open. And he almost unquestionably was not actually descended from the Minamoto, but he still established 250 plus years of peace in Japan. So based on a fiction, you could say, since he didn't technically have the right to be a shogun, but it worked. I feel like we've been a little bit mean to the Heike story here right at the end. So I wanted to bring back, here's Dr. Elizabeth Euler, about just how good the anime actually is for someone who is a scholar and has spent years of her life working on the Heike Monogatari. You know, I have very clear images in my mind of what various things look like when you represent them visually in the Heike and it was beautiful. It was like, it was perfect. <laughs> it was just, it was, and I, yeah, I really, I think that they did a really good job with it. And I guess it's done really well. And there's some true to the way that Heike has been represented in, um, in visual culture, but also, you know, but very compelling and, you know, as new work as well. It's quiz time. Oh no. <laughs> yes, it is quiz time. So of course we have 10 questions on what we've been listening to so far. Number one, what was the name of the war that the Heike story depicts? The Genpei War. Question two, what are the names of the two families involved in the war? The Taira and the, uh, the Genji. Or is it the Minamoto? Yeah, you've got them right. They are the Genji or the Minamoto. Number three, in the Insei system, what does the emperor becomes when he retires? I, I can't remember. Uh, something along the lines of a shadow boss, but... <laughs> he becomes a monk. Right, okay. Yeah, that, now I remember. <laughs> and Taida no Kiyomori also becomes a monk as well. Question four, 
what one part of the Imperial regalia is not recovered from the sea at the end of the Battle of Danuula? It's the sword, right? Yes, it is the sword, correct. Yay. Question five. What instrument is the Heike Monogatai traditionally performed on? The biwa. I don't know which specific biwa, but... Question six. What did the Jesuits use the Heike Monogatari for? I, I vaguely remember along the lines of using the Etsy Prince analogy, but I don't believe that's correct. So... Nah, you've got a little mixed up. They used it to learn Japanese. Uh, question seven. What modern day tragedy inspired much of Furukawa Hideo's translation? It was 311, right? Question eight. What was the name of the famous Japanese woodblock prints? It's the ukiyo-e. Ukiyo-e, yes. Question nine. What were the only two kind of living people who were allowed to be depicted in ukiyo-e? It is the... I, I want to say the emperor, but that's probably very wrong. Um, it's a mean one. It was actors and prostitutes. Question ten. Ukiyo-e likely influenced what modern-day form of popular Japanese culture? Manga. And Manga. And to an anime. Correct. That means you've got seven out of ten. <laughs> Could be better, but I, I think I tried my best. <laughs> it's a passing grade. It's very good. For those who want to hear more from Dr. Elizabeth Euler, the full interview for that will be on our website. She has also recently uh, published a book alongside Catherine Saltzman-Lee, which is called Cultural Imprints, War and Memory in the Samurai Age. And you can also find uh, more of Dr. Hilary K. Snow's writing online. But Jamal, where can we find you? Yeah, if you want to find me around, you can, in all podcast services, just search Get in the Mecca, um, the Get in the Mecca podcast. I do about at the moment about like once a month but it should be once a week anyway um you can also find me on twitter at get in the mecca where i you know tweet about those things and a lot of other ridiculous anime stuff and same for youtube as well if you just search get in the mecca or one word you can find me there and yeah that's about it we have more information on our website, which is www.japanhiddenhistorypodcast.com. Uh, there you can read some more in-depth information. You can start your own research into Japanese history. That includes articles on many of the subjects we've talked about over the past few episodes. You will also find full interviews with many of the academics who are lovely enough to have a talk to me about history. Uh, we are also on all the relevant social medias. You can find that all with links in the description as well for Jamal's stuff. Make sure you tune in next time as it is our season finale, where we break down the infamous The Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise epic that is... The movie makes me sad. Join me next time.